0: This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome back to Master the MRCPCH. My name is Dr. Ryan Thomas and I'm a registrar in clinical genetics and the digital learning education fellow here at the Gosh Learning Academy. This week we'll be speaking with the brilliant Dr. Keir Shields a consultant in general paediatrics here at Great Ormond Street Hospital. Our topic this week is constipation. It's a really practically useful episode, but will also be helpful when you're preparing for your exams. It's linked to the curriculum under gastroenterology. There's a couple of points there, but it maps to knowing how to diagnose and manage constipation. If you're preparing for your clinical exams, this is a topic that could well pop up in a communication station for example, in history-taking. So we hope you enjoy this week's episode. So thank you, Kia, for coming on the podcast today.
1: Thank you very much for having me back.
0: So we're going to be talking about constipation, which is clearly a very exciting topic. Before we start, do you mind telling our listeners what you'd like them to get out of listening to today's podcast?
1: Yeah, the reason why I wanted to talk about constipation actually is because it's one of those incredibly common things that is very... Pu- Hello,
0: and welcome back to another episode of Master the MRCBCH. My name is Dr. Ian Thomas, and I'm a genetics...
1: ...fully managed in real life. Most doctors think they know what it is and think they know how to manage it. And because of that, They don't necessarily get prescription completely on the money. They don't get diagnosis completely on the money. And it's worth having a a bit more of a a look at at the real world of constipation. It also turns up in exams as a manifestation of other illnesses. So it's worth having an overview just to, to sort of see what can present as constipation and how it may turn up in your exams. That
0: sounds perfect. So shall we, shall we start with definitions? Are there any definitions of constipation?
1: I would say that there is no satisfactory definition of constipation out there. And that's one of the big problems that everybody's got maybe one or two definitions in their head of what constipation is. Everybody knows the Bristol stool chart, and therefore assumes that if you've got a type 1 or type 2 stool, then you are constipated. Everybody's got this idea in their head that maybe bowel habits should be somewhere between once every three days, up to three times a day. That's a sort of bit of a, a nice average to think about that only really applies to adult populations. So really the, the way that I would describe constipation is simply difficulty passing stool, full stop. That encompasses an awful lot because. People very often forget that, for example, large volume stools are constipation. Even if it's type 3 or type 4, if you're passing very large volumes in one go, then you are constipated. The normal bowel habit for a newborn baby, up until they start weaning, can be anything between 10 times a day and once every 10 days. So as a child ages, bowel habit itself alters because... Obviously, what you're ingesting changes as you move from milk to food and as you become more active. So, I would say that difficulty passing stool is really the cardinal symptom. And I think it was, it was the, the comedian Simon Amstel who said that, that really you should not do a poo, you should allow a poo. And I think that that's the, the, the thing that a lot of people forget that it should be a relatively Passive process, and if you're straining, then you're constipated, and you may need a bit of help.
0: That's a great way to think about it, and uh, a great memory jig there from Simon Amstel. So I know that you wanted to talk about kind of constipation in real life versus constipation in how it might pop up in your exams. Is that right?
1: That is, yes, because in an exam, you're aiming to test a breadth of knowledge and a depth of knowledge, and very often. Constipation management is neither seen as particularly broad nor particularly deep. So it usually crops up in exams as a manifestation of other illnesses. So a child with previously normal bowel habit will start to become progressively more constipated and the diagnosis will turn out, for example, to be celiac disease or cystic fibrosis or thyroid disease, hypothyroidism. And it's important to have a sort of framework of constipation associated diseases in your head. The other way that it can crop up is, is looking at behavioral disorders and children who disproportionately do not enjoy going to the toilet and therefore hold, hold things in and their constipation can be part of a manifestation of fussy eating, behavioral difficulties and need for familiar environments and so on. So it can crop up in a variety of, of, of ways. And bowel habit, is always important to think about, you know, spinal function and 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 blockages and so forth. But in your typical school age child, it's going to crop up as a manifestation of another illness. In a neonate, however, it's going to crop up in a different way. And really that's going to be more about a delay in passing meconium and the big print diagnosis to understand there is Hirschsprung's disease. The idea that the bowel itself has lost its ability to open, it's chronically tonic and, and closed, and therefore a baby needs a, a, a rectal biopsy and may well need a stoma fitted, and that's very much the sort of surgical end of constipation. But for the vast majority of cases that you will deal with in your clinical practice, It's just going to be idiopathic constipation, and constipation is going to be potentially a tiny little sub-point of a disease that's actually going to manifest in a variety of other symptoms as well as constipation.
0: Perfect. And although idiopathic constipation is idiopathic, I know there are some factors that can contribute to that.
1: Yeah, I, I really don't like the term idiopathic constipation because by definition, idiopathic means we don't know what causes it and very often we do know what causes or at least predisposes to a lot of children who have constipation and constipation is one of the most common presentations to both primary care and secondary care in children and we we're even bad at labeling it so the majority of early school age children for example will try to avoid going to the toilet at school. They will, they will hold it in because going to the toilet at school involves leaving lessons, making yourself known to people. School toilets aren't necessarily the most pleasant and, and comfortable of, of atmospheres. So uh, you've got a behavioural element of, of withholding. And then you've got diet and hydration as well. We're recording this in 40 degree heat at the moment in the middle of the July heat wave of 2022. And not maintaining hydration predisposes to, to constipation. Diet, loads of children are fussy eaters. That's fairly standard. Needing a decent amount of fiber in your diet is is important. And all of these things sort of add up and create a sort of Sub level of chronic constipation in an awful lot of children. Some of which just needs decent behavioral management, such as making sure that a child goes to the toilet before they go to school, even if they don't feel that they need to, that sort of thing. Dietary management, which we can talk about in a bit and exercise management as well. The flip side of all of this is that anything that can predispose you to constipation can happen in a clinical setting. So if, for example, you're not getting a lot of enteral hydration because you've just had an operation and you're not drinking and you're not moving about a lot and you're not wanting to go to the toilet in a bedpan, you will end up getting all of the risk factors that predispose children to constipation. So it's something that you've got to be particularly vigilant about as a hospital doctor because even children who haven't had a history of constipation run the risk of becoming constipated when they're in hospital.
0: And before we move on to to talk about treatment, I don't know whether it's worth mentioning kind of investigations. I guess that's linked to what you think the underlying cause could be.
1: Yeah, the question of investigations with constipation is a, a tricky one because for the vast majority of children, they don't need any investigation at all. And I'm sure that people who are Familiar with the gastro unit at Great Ormond Street, think a lot about investigations because the children we see here are disproportionately the ones with particular rare gut transit issues and so forth. But for most children with constipation, they've just got the normal risk factors for developing a normal hard bowel habit, and they don't need a variety of radiological investigations. They probably don't need blood work either. And you would only start to do thyroid tests and celiac disease if your child is also pale or also bloated or also anemic or is losing their hair or is not growing with failure to thrive. And so a lot of these other signs need to be present really for you to to, to jump towards a needle.
0: That's really clear. Thank, thank you for going over that, Kia. So let's move on to think about treatment. I know this can be a bit of a minefield, so it would be great to get your thoughts about treatment of constipation.
1: Yes. So I guess this is more where real world clinical practice is now the focus of what I want to talk about because the basic management of constipation and the basic management of behavior is not something that crops up much in exams. There may be a couple of questions in exams about star charts and rewards for for managing to go to the loo and so forth but the reason why i wanted to talk about constipation is that it's very poorly managed even on a basic level so i guess we have to split things down into general management of daily life and minimizing risk factors of constipation and then dealing with the difference between acute constipation and chronic constipation medically so If we just think first about lifestyle issues, the biggest ones that are going to predispose you to constipation are withholding behaviors, poor diet, poor hydration, and immobility. Now there are some children who are immobile through disability. There are some children with behavioral or non-neurotypical behaviors who require additional support in terms of going to the toilet and also who are fussy eaters. But let's just pick apart each of these four issues. Getting children to be more active is pretty straightforward, you know, encouraging them to go out and play, encouraging them to be involved in, in sports, but remember that for any risk factor, the converse also provides a problem, so anybody recovering from surgery runs the risk of becoming constipated. And if you can't get somebody moving a lot because they've got two broken legs, Then you may well have to manage other elements of their lifestyle in order to prevent them from being constipated. Hydration is a really key one and it's enteral hydration. It's making sure that the stool has water content, not that the patient has water content. Putting a patient on an IV drip is not going to solve their stool hydration issues. It is going to solve their general hydration status. But they still run the risk of being constipated, particularly if they're tethered to a drip, they're immobile. So you've got to make sure that they're taking, where possible, decent amounts of enteral fluid. And the enteral route is by far the best route for, for fluid anyway. But if a child is dehydrated, if a child has got a diarrhea, vomiting bug, then they run the risk paradoxically of ending up constipated at the end of it. So keeping them well hydrated is really important. If they've got a sore throat and don't want to eat and drink, they're going to end up constipated. So ice lollies are your friend. Getting fluid and sugar as well into children is great when you can pretend it's a treat. Remember, the majority of the content of jelly is water. The majority of the content of an ice lolly is water. These are things that children think of as treats and they can be the mainstay of hydration therapy. Now, jelly a bit tricky because it's got a high sugar content as well, which will create osmotic problems. But if you can get jelly and ice into a child, then you're doing very well. The last thing we need to talk about is fruit and veg. And I think this is where people actually go wrong the most because we've all learned, through, not through medical school, but through sort of being aware of public health campaigns that we should have five portions of fruit and veg a day. We don't really get taught an awful lot about the nutritional content of foods at medical school. Ask most parents whether their child has a balanced diet and they will probably say yes. And the reason why they probably say yes is because they feel that the question is sort of aimed at them as a parent, rather than any question about what might be affecting their child's bowel habit. And if you drill down into dietary history, you tend to find that Parents say, oh, they have lots of fruit and vegetables. You know, he loves sweet corn. He loves carrots. He loves oranges. He loves grapes. And these are all useless. These are all terrible. You know, I mean, when, <laughs> if you think about it, sweet corn very often comes out looking exactly the same as it did when it went in. Right? It's not full of fiber. Sweet potato is not full of fiber. These are starchy fairly rubbish vegetables. How do most children eat an orange? They cut it into segments and then suck the juice out, leaving a tiny amount of fibrous pith in the orange. It doesn't have a huge fiber content at all. It's a big water bomb. Same with grapes. They're full of sweet juice, but they don't actually have an awful lot of fiber in. So what I suggest when I'm talking to children is trying to get into them Fruits, and it's disproportionately fruits because like nobody's going to succeed trying to force feed their child broccoli. Try to aim for fruits that feel like treats. So melons, mangoes, plums, nectarines, peaches, even the stuff out of a tin. Those are fruits that when you squash them and tear them apart and pulp them, there's an awful lot of mucky, gunky, fibrous stuff left. And so giving a child a bowl of mango and pineapple is a bit of a treat because it tastes really sweet and really nice, but that's by far the best way of getting fiber into them and not through sucking on an orange and having some fruit juice because that's not going to do any good at all. So be careful about your fruit and veg advice. Make sure that a child is exercising and is, is playing as much as possible. Make sure that they are rewarded for going to the toilet before school and make sure that they are sort of engaging with decent hydration. And those are the four lifestyle points to try and prevent or treat mild constipation.
0: Great. And shall we just touch on the pharmacological side of things as well?
1: Yeah. So I guess the the key thing is to distinguish between acute constipation and chronic constipation. You've ultimately got, I'm going to say three types of laxatives that you can use. You've got stool softeners, which. Stuff like Movicol, which is just a brand name and it's called, they're called Macrogols. So they come in a variety of different brands, but we tend to say Movicol, Lactulose, which is a much softer, less robust stool softener than, than Movacol. And those are your two sort of classic stool softeners. And then you've got stuff that are spasmodics that actually try to push stuff out rather than soften it. And that's stuff like Senna. For example, some of the drugs like picosulfate sort of work both ways, but your mainstay of treatment really is going to be stool softeners or spasmodics. The third type are your enemas. And that's really to just get rid of a blockage at the bottom end. That's just to pull the plug out of the plug hole to allow everything else that's following to move down a bit. And those should not be the mainstay treatment for a chronic problem. The exception to that, because there's always an exception, is if you've got a baby who has got intermittent problems with constipation, a glycerin chip is usually the best way of getting them to evacuate their bowels, because you can't really soften things beyond the breast milk that they've been taking in. So everything in the top end has been as watery as possible. You've just got to get stuff out the bottom end if they're struggling.
0: Brilliant. So thanks for going over that, Kia. I think that's really, really clear. So I know that treating constipation can be something that is not done very well on the general paediatric wards. Why do you think that is given that there's only a sort of handful of medications that, that we can
1: use? The reason why the treatment of constipation is so poor is that people don't actually even know errors when they're in front of them. And a lot of clinical practice has I don't want to say become lazy because that's that's unfair, but has become suboptimal and been accepted. So take, for example, the basic prescription of Movacol. Everybody thinks they know how to prescribe Movacol because they prescribe this all the time. And I have pretty much yet to see a Movacol prescription that is prescribed totally correctly. So where do people go wrong? Well, the first thing is that any child over the age of 12 should be on adult Movicol and any child under the age of 12 should be on paediatric Movicol. They're different strengths. And so I see an awful lot of teenagers on paediatric wards being prescribed paediatric Movicol because people are on a paediatric ward and they're clicking the button that says paediatric. Even on a a ward where we're still on handwritten charts, people have written the word Movicol but paediatric motorcol is sort of what's in the cupboard and therefore it's what's being given. So make sure that when you're, if you're handwriting a drug chart, that you put adult or paediatric in brackets so that the right thing is actually given. The next thing is that the time window should not be 12 hours. Most people prescribe things twice daily at say eight o'clock in the morning and eight o'clock at night. Now, particularly when you're dealing with chronic constipation and you're trying to do this impaction regime, the BNF is very clear that the entire day's worth of Movicol should be given within a six to eight hour window. And so prescribing it at eight and eight is not doing the job that you want it to. It needs to be given with breakfast and after lunch in order that all of that Movicol has got a chance to incorporate itself into all of the foods and all of the stool. Otherwise, you end up with bits that are hard and bits that are soft, and it's not going to work as quickly. So I tend to prescribe it at eight in the morning and at two in the afternoon. The volumes that are consumed are really difficult for children to, to drink. And very often, if they're on two or three or four sachets of Movicol, they struggle to get it down them. And so by prescribing it six hours apart, it sort of gives them a good hour to get their first dose of Movicol into them. They can just sip it gradually. And then six hours later, they can start taking their next one and it'll be fully incorporated into their stomach. I'm sure within an hour or two, but asking them to just down 200 mils, 250 mils of fluid is a real challenge for a six year old. And we should be cognizant of what we're actually asking them to do. And then I guess the, the next bit of getting Movicol into children is about what you mix it in with so for a lot of children it's not actually the flavor of Movicol that they find unpleasant it's the texture and it's possible to incorporate it into fruit squashes just to make it a little bit more more pleasant but at home you can incorporate it into fizzy drinks you can incorporate it into juices that already have a bit of body to them like mango juice for example and then the unusual texture isn't quite as quite as bad. So that's the the sort of key to prescribing Movicol. And then the final addition onto that is if you're doing a a disimpaction regime where you're increasing the dose of Movicol every other day, you have to increase it by roughly a sachet every day. Now you can do that in a complicated way by saying you start off with a sachet in the morning and a sachet in the afternoon and then the following day or the day after you do one sachet and then two sachets. But before you know it, you're writing out a, a huge list of different doses. But actually, if you tell parents to increase each dose by half a sachet a day, then that really helps. So they go from one twice a day to one and a half twice a day to two twice a day to two and a half twice a day. So it's a lot easier to keep track of and a lot easier to remember. So remember that really what's important is your daily intake of Movicol not making sure that everything is, is all staggered. And so that's how to prescribe Movacol. I know it's a, a long and rambling talk, but actually there are a good four prescription errors that usually crop up. But you can see why these mistakes happen because people don't sort of drill down into what brand of Movacol or what strength of Movacol people are on. And a lot of the difficulties are sort of accepted difficulties that, well, every 12 hours isn't causing any harm, therefore we won't mark it as a problem. Well, it's not going to work as well if you do it every 12 hours. So best to stick to the actual instructions.
0: Really, really practically useful tips there. Thank you so much, Kia. What about the other drugs?
1: So I guess the the other drugs are easier and quicker to 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 talk about. The the first is lactulose. So that is an alternative to Movicol. Or an adjuvant to Movacol, you can give it as well. Generally speaking, though, it does not work as well as Movacol and it should not be your first line. And I guess the the prescription error that usually turns up is firstly, it started first line. But secondly, that it's used as an alternative to Movacol. Now, if you can get two sachets of Movacol into a child, but you just can't get the volume of the third sachet in, then add some lactulose on top. Use lactulose as you might a second-line antiepileptic or a second-line asthma treatment. You're not substituting one for the other. You're adding it in on top, and that's important. The next drug that's often misused is Senna. Now, Senna is misused because it's very widely available. It's very easy to prescribe. But actually, if the stool is not soft... All center is going to do is increase bowel motility against a hard obstruction. And what you're going to end up with is causing an awful lot of pain. And if you are using Senna as a first-line treatment, disproportionately, you're going to actually create an awful lot of restless nights, rolling abdominal pain, colicky-style pain. And so you've got to get the stool soft before you start throwing Senna at it. Senna is much more useful when you've got a problem with bowel tone and the bowel is all sort of floppy and flaccid and soft poo is holding in the rectum, but not coming out, then you can sort of give it a nudge with Senna. The final thing to talk about really is the duration of treatment, because you wouldn't stop your insulin once you had a normal blood sugar. You wouldn't stop your steroids once you had a normal peak flow. And it's really important not to stop your laxatives if you have got A normal bowel habit. The rule of thumb should be that you need to be on laxatives for as long as you have been constipated. So if you're going to a hospital with a normal bowel habit, you develop some constipation because of some surgery, then you probably only need to be on laxatives for a week. But if you've got a problem caused by 18 months of behavior and poor diet, and you finally get to a hospital physician after a few attempts with the GP, but things not quite working. You probably need to be on laxatives for another 18 months. And the reason for that is that as the bowel fills up with hard stool, it stretches. And when the stool is released, it doesn't spring back into place. It loses its tone and its elasticity. And it takes an awful lot of time for that bowel to stop being stretched and go back to having a nice tone. So you need to create a very easy to pass soft stool for a very long time before you end up being able to have a normal bowel habit. So I guess that's the, the, the key message that chronic constipation requires a chronic treatment.
0: Okay, so we've we've gone through some of the treatments there, Kia. I just wanted to ask and before we round up about enemas. How do they kind of slot into the the treatment regimen for for constipation? How,
1: how do enemas slot in? Well, <laughs> that's that's a question and a half. Yeah. I will allow people to answer the practicalities <laughs> through through their own research. But but enemas are enemas. Are, are probably slightly overused in the acute setting, but maybe not much. They provide an instant relief, but as I said before, only need to be used to remove a sort of blockage that is preventing everything from moving on. So if you've got a child who's very constipated, they're on a Movicol regime, things don't seem to be quite working. You can unplug the the very bottom end, and then hopefully everything that follows will be a lot softer. Two mainstays really are microlax or citrate enemas that have got a very small amount of fluid in. They can be used in much younger children, but the more robust enemas are the fleet style phosphate enemas, which are much better in, in AE. I tend to use them when somebody is really severely impacted. And I guess the question then is how can you tell? The jury is out as to whether you should be X-raying these children in order to diagnose impaction. Very often you shouldn't be, but it can sometimes help. An X-ray is generally thought of as something that you shouldn't do, but it can actually clarify matters quite significantly one way or the other. But the major rule is try not to scan children if you think you know what's going on and only use an enema wants to try and shift something from the bottom end it's not the mainstay of treatment it's really important to monitor constipation closely and in an outpatient setting that's really difficult because obviously you're giving medications to to parents but even in an inpatient setting you can sort of feel that once you prescribe the movacol that's job done and you've got more important things to do it's very important to give parents red flags to look out for and they're your allies at the bedside as an inpatient as well and those include rectal bleeding, overflow diarrhea, which has to be described very um, clearly, and vomiting and feed intolerance, as well as the obvious worsening of abdominal pain and distension. And if that happens, you may need to bring a patient in or even increase the impact of your disimpaction regime by providing more medications much more swiftly, or escalating to something like clean prep.
0: Great. Thank you for for clarifying that. So before we let you go, we're going to ask you our standard quickfire questions. Of course. So the first one is, are there any classic exam questions or recurrent themes that, that pop up about this subject?
1: So from an exam point of view, usually constipation is only one of a series of symptoms in a constellation. And you need to be thinking about investigations and whether a child has got an underlying problem classic examples are thyroid disease and celiac disease even cystic fibrosis and its distal intestinal obstructive syndrome where you get sort of constipation in the small bowel which which needs a similar management to any other form of constipation but quite aggressively so and so really that's that's the thing about it in exams it doesn't really crop up much in the in the practical OSCE style exams, except maybe you're asked to take a dietary history from somebody, or you have a history taking and or explanation station about functional abdominal pain or constipation, and it'll be looking more as a cause of abdominal pain rather than anything else.
0: Great. And our second question is are there any useful resources that you'd recommend people having a look
1: at? Yes. So Eric Look to Eric, Eric, if you Google it, Eric constipation is, is a brilliant resource. It provides an awful lot of information for the management of both idiopathic constipation and constipation that comes in conjunction with other symptoms. It's a superb website aimed at clinicians and at parents about monitoring a child's bowel habit and working out the different causes and interventions that can be, can be used so. I would definitely point to people in the direction of Eric. Also, the BNF is weirdly your friend on this one. There will be loads of guidelines about how to manage constipation and when to go from a macrogol to an inpatient administration of clean prep and all of the rest of it. But actually, it's the one chapter of the BNF that it's probably worth just reading, oddly. And just go through each drug, which are relatively common drugs and, and making sure you know how to prescribe them properly. You're never going to be expected to remember how to prescribe levotiracetam or something like that. But macrogols are just one of those things that you're supposed to brush off. And it's very easy to fall into bad habits. So the BNF and Eric are probably your friends there.
0: Great tips. And then the third question is, what are your three takeaway learning points?
1: My three takeaway learning points are, you don't know how to prescribe Movicol. You don't know how to prescribe Movicol. And you don't know how to prescribe Movicol. So the, the key take home messages are with Movicol, get the dose right. First of all, get the pediatric one or the adult one, get the dosing interval right. So make sure that it's six to eight hours apart. And the final thing about Movicol is make sure that you get the duration of it right. This is not a mainstay treatment just for a week. It's a chronic management of a chronic problem. Those are my three Movicol points. Any other management of constipation really needs to be added in on top of that. So if you're thinking of your Senna's or even Lactulose, don't prescribe that first line. Make sure it's on top of the three key points of Movicol prescription.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Kia. It's been a pleasure to have you as always.
1: It's a pleasure. I'm going to go and eat some mango.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via social media. You can find GOSH Learning Academy on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. If you want to hear more about the work of the GOSH Learning Academy, you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We also have lots of exciting new podcasts coming soon. To find out more, search GOSH Pods wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you again next time. Thank you. Bye.